What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meep, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters, and welcome to another edition of Living with a Pod Complex, a spinoff of Meet Meep discussing albums on Trustkill Records that were distributed by Roadrunner Records. This episode is about Most Precious Blood and their 2005 album, Merciless. This was arguably the biggest release for the band, not only because it's them at the peak of their powers, but also because in 2005, metal and hardcore is having a huge cultural moment thanks to things like Hot Topic and MTV2. The cover artwork of Merciless seems a little less optimistic, with a dead cadaver covered in a sheet at a hospital, blood soaking through, which, uh... Seems against protocol, really. But inside the album, we see the face of this dead person having been left there for weeks. Nobody even noticed he was gone. And this was all shot by longtime band collaborator and celebrated photographer Justin Baruki. And a little bit of trivia for you. The person portraying the hospital patient is also the man who graces the cover of Indecision's Release the Cure album. Indecision was, of course, the prequel to Most Precious Blood, but less, uh... Less Phantom Menace and more uh, X-Men First Class. But now that you know about the cover, we go to MPB vocalist Rob Fusco, who tells us about the other facets of making the album, comparing it to other works of his, and his relationship with Roadrunner bands like Sepultura and Typo Negative. And he shows no mercy. I don't know what people think of of these albums. I don't. I mean, I, there's a part of me that wants them to be well received and for something to mean something to somebody or to like help people through, you know, tough times or whatever. Which is half the point. I, I'm not fingering the pulse of anything. I, I, I basically try not to pay attention to slash care what other people think or say. Well, let me ask you then, artistically, how do you feel about Merciless compared to Our Lady of Annihilation or even Do Not Resuscitate? Merciless was, I think, a, a solid step in the right direction. I, I think, you know, musically uh, uh, and lyrically slash vocally, uh, I think the addition of Colin uh, on the drums really made a huge difference. I mean, I like Sean. All respect to Sean, the, the guy who drummed on Our Lady. Uh but objectively speaking, I think Colin is, by an order of magnitude, a superior drummer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I consider him a, a close friend still. Uh, so having Colin in the band, the stuff that we were writing around then, I thought was kind of like a logical progression uh, in, along the, along a a proper trajectory. Like this is, it's like the stuff I wanted to listen to, the stuff I wanted to kind of, uh, sow lyrical ideas into. Uh, and so that became kind of, um, uh, in terms of my vocal performance, uh, on, on Merciless, uh, I, I recorded every day for like, I think four or five weeks, in in brooklyn dean baltolanis who did i think wild arctic studios he was fantastic to work with very straightforward really really hard worker uh and he has a hell of an ear very creative so getting to getting to track with him day after day was was very good for me and i think you know vocally that performance was i think 
worthwhile, you know, and it helped to have Dean uh, at the board saying, okay, yeah, that you can do better, you know, for sure. He wasn't cruel about it, but there were times when there'd be a line that I'd have to punch that I just wasn't happy with. And I would, I would sing the line and the music would stop. And all I would hear was Dean's voice again. And so he'd roll it. I'd track it again, again. So it was, it was repetitive and it was grueling. And some days I would drag myself out of the studio, absolutely spent, but that's okay. Because I think the, the end product was something to be proud of, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that Merciless is as far as like the power of your voice goes, you're your finest hour. You know, I think that uh, it also sounds the most like you. I feel like maybe Our Lady was used to kind of figuring out how your voice worked with their music. I agree. And I wasn't, I wasn't very pleased with my performance on Our Lady. That was kind of a tough album to track. I think there was a lot of like, you know, like you noted me kind of trying to figure out what voice I was developing for that band. And I think I, I agree with you, uh, you know, Merciless was uh, everything just kind of fit really well. And I was able to kind of find my groove there. And I would say, you know, these days with uh, with my current my current band, my current project, uh, I think vocally, I'm, I'm definitely way more comfortable than I've ever been. And I think, you know, probably more powerful than than I've ever been. So uh, I would like to also credit Randy LaBeouf for for also being I think Randy is is probably my favorite producer to work with uh, and engineer to work with. Um, you see, is he's brutally honest, but he's super compassionate, and he's immensely and uh, just ceaselessly creative. So we tried a bunch of new things. Uh, so I think you know my voice now for sure. I'm I'm way more centered, way more powerful. Everything is diaphragmatic. Everything is like wide open. All my vowel sounds are attacked, you know, appropriately. Um, you know, technically I feel, I feel pretty good. And that's take life that you're referring to. That is take life. Yes. Did you feel like with merciless that the band as a whole was more of a a unit than you coming in as kind of a replacement on our lady of annihilation. Now it's like this band is a solidified group of people. I got that sense. Um, I think our chemistry at that point was at its peak. Uh, you know, we were, we were touring very often. We got, we got along well, uh, you know, we were all kind of in our, our creative centers and kind of churning stuff out at a, at a healthy pace. And, you know, touring for me was actually really good because vast majority of touring is just travel, you know? And so I would, I would write constantly. Uh, so that was also very good for my process. So just in the in the van or or in the bus, just constantly creating output and trying to to work with themes and you know it was just an everyday thing. You just if you do something with focus every day, you're going to make at least some progress. So I'd like I'd like to think that that's a part of the formula. Uh, DNR lyrically. I like how, how things turned out there. And that was definitely some of the themes on DNR were precursors to, you know, subsequent, subsequent work, but vocally I'm not, I wasn't, I wasn't entirely like psyched on the, the finished product overall. And I think because it was, it was done so piecemeal. I was living in Philadelphia at the time and, you know, training out of my facility in old city. And I would have to like drive to sign studios downtown track for an hour and then drive back to work. It was all, it was kind of, uh, you know, whenever there was time I had to like, you know, get on my scooter and go across town, scream my ass off and then drive back to work, you know? So yeah, real life gets in the way. And, you know, I think that showed a little bit, but to kind of put a cap on your idea. Yes. Uh, Merciless was when we were at our kind of creative peak and more in our flow uh, than at any other time. With how popular metal and hardcore was at that time, especially compared to, you know, if you even think of less than a decade before when you're doing one King down, it's more mm-hmm. in the lexicon, it's on MTV, things like that. Did you have expectations for merciless uh, from a commercial aspect? No. And I think that's, that's part of why I still perform and I still write music. Right. Cause I, I harbor no expectation. I don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, like I want, I want people to draw something from it, you know, for what it is to them, but I don't, 
if if it mattered to me that I, you know, moved units or, you know, sold t-shirts or made money or whatever, then I would just write pop songs. I would just, you know, it's not like I'm I'm lyrically inept. Uh, and I have a, a reasonable singing voice. I would just I would just write pop jams and that's it. You know, try to get some relatively good looking bandmates and sign to Equal Vision, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm not saying that would be your motivation. I'm just saying, did you think that maybe something would happen more with it uh, just because of the the zeitgeist that you're in the middle of when that album comes out? I'm not saying that's why you made the album. I'm just wondering no, if understand. that was. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, so I stand. I stand corrected there. I'm just. I'm so used to being like. So did you expect you know to to get fucking huge? <laughs> or maybe I should also say, do you think Trustkill had expectations for the album? I think Trustkill expected to make a lot of money and keep all of it. Like, uh, no, I mean. Especially knowing that Josh Grabell was at the helm of Trustkill. Yeah, no, I, I didn't expect to see a dime of anything. When I was recording uh, Do Not Resuscitate, uh, I made a deal with Josh that, you know, Trustkill would pay $1,000 to sign studios in Philadelphia to record the vocals for, for DNR. After the vocals were done, sign studio invoices Josh. Josh doesn't pay them. So they're going back and forth. Sign Studios talks to me and said, look, this is making you look really bad. And we're going to have to subpoena you because we're going to sue Josh Grabell to get our money. Josh sent them an email in which he states, he's like, I will, I will pay you half. I'll pay you $500 because I never contracted with Rob or with you. Show me the paperwork. And if you, if you don't withdraw your case, I'll have it thrown out and you get nothing. I already talked to my mom, who is the head of the bar association in New Jersey. She already said she would do it. Quote, end quote. So this is the type of dude Josh is. He's, he is an absolute fucking weasel who will shake your hand and smile to your face. And then, you know, behind your back, he will go to great lengths to profit from you. And that's 100% the truth, you know, because he will take out a full page trust kill ad in like revolver or metal hammer include like, like a three quarter square inch image of like a band's album and say, Oh, also check out hopes fall. Right. And charge that full page ad to the band's account and turn it into a recuperable expense uh, through the band. Like where he, where trust kill takes benefit. And he takes benefit at the expense of the people who are touring. It's like, you fucking snake. In fact, that's an insult to snakes. I really like snakes. I mean, I love snakes. Nothing I mean, my, to- my buddy Rennie is like a herpetologist. You know the band Starkweather? Rennie Resmini, herpetologist. Also an electrician, but still. He's got his, his apartment is full of like Solomon Island skinks and geckos and shit. It's amazing. Oh, what about an electric eel? He can get the best of both worlds with that. I think you're right. Wow, that's actually pretty clever. That's pretty clever. Like 800, uh, what is it, 800 volts? For an electric eel? Yeah, 800. I don't have the voltage on hand, but that's, that sounds accurate. It's like, it's like over 800. It's like 830 something for like the larger electric eels. And they do this fucked up thing where they'll like, they'll come out of the water and they'll push their chin against you and like maximize their, you know, electrical influence on you and just fucking kill you. It's amazing. That's that is incredible. I mean, the ocean in general is wild. Terrifying. And like- <laughs> Fuck all that bullshit. Number one, I can't swim. Number two, if I can't see it, nope, I, nope, get me away from it. Be that as it may. Did you have camaraderie with the other bands, even if it sounds like you didn't have a lot of uh, love for your boss? Yeah, one. No, first off, he wasn't my boss. Fuck him. Right. Okay. So, secondly, yeah, we got we got along with all the other bands just fine. But I mean, given how things were, I mean. Yeah, no, I, I don't know that expectation would be the, the correct term. I mean, I felt fortunate to kind of be in the in the storm of it, you know, like uh, when when things were at their peak and when when that sound was, you know, best received by a lot of people. But yeah, no, I, I guess not. I didn't really harbor any expectation whatsoever. I just I just let it rip. I let it, you know, be its own thing. And whatever happened, happened. Now, before the album comes out, uh, you guys are playing Two Men Enter, One Men, One Men, <laughs> Two Men Enter, One Man Leaves on tour. So was that the first song you guys wrote for this kind of collection of songs? 
you know, I do not know. I can't it also kind of sounds the most uh, Our Lady of Annihilation-ish. You know, it's the least like yeah. metallic. The The process was kind of weird because we didn't really like write a song and then have it waiting in the wings and then write another song. Uh, there'd be like, you know, three or four songs or five songs that get written at a time and then sent to me. And then I would just like listen to all of them, maybe not even write anything initially. And I think there was one point I had, I had, I think a vast majority of the songs that were going to be on the album all at once. And I, I think I had written, maybe I had written barely anything for them. And so maybe a month and a half where I just listened to the album and nothing but and just kind of wrote things in as they, as the patterns emerged, you know, I'm, I'm definitely like kind of a big bite uh, writer, you know, it's not like, okay, give me the song and I work on the song and, uh, and then here's this song. Okay, cool. I'll take that song and I'll work on that song. Uh, And it, it doesn't quite work that way for me. I'm, you know, I'll take an entire body of work. I'll listen to it ad infinitum, ad nauseum, you know, uh and i'll try to soak up the vibe and kind of get a sense for what the music is trying to say instead of me just taking you know composite lyrics stapling them into the landscape of the music and kind of imposing my will like that that would that would make for some really shitty kind of incongruent pieces of art you know i i want to kind of speak i want my voice to harmonize with the voice of the song and to harmonize with the mood of the song, that's that's it. So for for Merciless, I think I I had a vast majority of the, the music, and then just kind of sewed things in over the course of, you know, however long it would just be on repeat constantly, and I'd fall asleep for a little while, wake up, write a little bit. It was just like my desk, a small bin of clothes, a few books, and a futon, and that was my room, and that's just how I lived. Uh, and I'm not I don't live so differently these days, right? <laughs> Light and fast, keep it simple. But that's it. That's all I did. Uh, I just I woke up. I wrote. I went to Bomber's Burrito Bar on Lark Street in Albany, New York, or Mamoon's Falafel, and got food. Went back to the house, kept writing, and that's that's it. That was that was all I did. So the short answer is, I just I had the whole album, and then I just I wrote the whole album all at once. And are these like demos that they've sent you, or the musically the album is completed before your vocals are ever started? No, it's just it's just demo stuff, and then and then we would all kind of get together in the studio and and record the album in the traditional way. Now, when the album does come out, you go on tour with Hatebreed for the 10 years of brutality tour with Gizmachi. I remember that. And Mantis. I remember Mantis. (laughs) I remember Mantis. Mantis famously on the battle for Ozfest television show. And Gizmachi were like the the clown from Slipknot's first like outside of Slipknot project. Yep, I remember. So it's Yeah, Sean. <laughs> right, Sean. The H1 band. Yep. Uh Slipknot handpicked children band. You <laughs> hate breed. So do you have any uh interesting stories from interacting with those that group of people? No no comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I can't say a bad thing about them. <clears throat> they were all really sweet people. We didn't really have any bad vibes. Uh, nobody, nobody rubbed us the wrong way. We, we didn't rub anybody the wrong way. It was, you know, it was just uh, business as usual. You know, wake up, see everybody. Oh, good morning. How you doing? Whatever. You know, sound check, hang out, talk a little bit. It was, uh, yeah, that was it was a fun tour. Uh, not a lot of attitude. I thought Hatebreed always treated us really well. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a bad thing to say about Jamie. Jamie let me sleep in his bunk and his, uh, when, when, uh, he would fly off to, uh, to film headbangers ball, he'd be like sleep in my bunk. Just don't use my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> like, cool, man, whatever. And I think, uh, this was when Sean Martin was still in the band and shit. I've known Jamie and Sean, uh, and, and Matt for like 500 years. Like one King down used to tour with them all the time. Shark Ethic, the first uh, song on the album, you do yeah. a video for. Yep. What was doing the video like? Were you psyched on that at the time? <clears throat> yeah, that was a lot of fun, actually. Uh, we woke up at like a billion o'clock, filmed all day. I think it was like a two day, it was like a, was it a two day shoot? I forget exactly. I'm confusing uh, 
like the first video we did. The Great Red Shift with the Great Red Shit bomb strapped to oh our my God. Yeah, um, that was Holy Mother. That, who who was actually a really sweet girl. She was super, super nice. All we did the entire time we were filming was just hang out and talk about Nintendo. It's great. It's not needy. It's just like, hey, just wants to hang out and, you know, pretend to be the the Virgin Mary with the, you know, some significant ordinance strapped to her body. Some Acme Dynamite, which ties into the Roadrunner meme, meme thing. This is Wiley Coyote. Was Perfect. The... I love it. So, yeah, a little bit of trinitrotoluene to, uh, to liven things up. But yeah, filming filming that video was actually a lot of fun. We had Lou Collar of Sick of It All cameo as a security guard. And oh, the uh, the prop master for the video uh, gave Lou to be a security guard with. It's an actual tactical telescoping baton. I bought it off of uh, I bought it off of the prop master for like twenty bucks. I'm like, yo, you, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, you want it? I'm like, yeah, twenty bucks, done. So now I have now I have this completely illegal thing that I keep in my car. But that rules because it's not only like a sick thing in general, because it's like a weapon, but also it's, you know, it's a, a, a keepsake of this time in your life. That's right. It's a, it's a souvenir from the video once wielded by Lou Collar himself. So feeling, feeling pretty good. Crack someone's teeth out and be like, you know where this came from? But, so the premise of the video is you guys like take over a radio station. That's right. You're uh, taking over the pop station. You're like, hey, we're rock and roll. We're hardcore. We're not listening to this pop stuff. What are you thinking? WLDD, the greatest station in the nation. Whatever. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we uh, we wanted to make the point that what was important to us was not, you know, moving units or getting radio play or any of these fantasies that these like kind of dilettantes had going into to start a band. Uh, and I think that comes from just touring a lot a long time ago when, you know, there, there wasn't GPS and you had to, you know, and it was real, it was actually legitimately really tough to, to tour. And then there are some bands who like, you know, they'll start, they'll start a band where eyeliner, like, you know, within six months are absolutely massive on warp tour or whatever. Uh, it may smack of jealousy and bitterness, but I mean, number one, we're already bitter and no, we're not jealous of anybody, but the whole, the whole point was that, uh, you know, we're not, we're not here for the glam. We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. I thought maybe you saw the movie Airheads and you were like, yeah, let's, it's the movie where Brendan Fraser has a band and he takes over a radio station to make them play his uh, song, but his girlfriend has the only copy of the song on a cassette tape. Oh. Wait, is this, oh, okay, okay, okay. Was this the one with, was Joe Montana in that? I think you're thinking of Sega Genesis's NFL football with Joe Montana of the San Francisco 49ers. No, uh, jo- Joe Montana is in the movie. So I know you don't care about uh, commercial success or making pop songs or any of that, but uh, Driving Angry, pretty catchy tune. It's reasonably catchy, isn't it? You got Mike from Damnation AD getting those little songs. I love Mike. I absolutely love Mike. Yes, 100%. Like having Mike, uh, the person, you know, He's a person with whom I've been friends for like a long, long time and whose work I respect tremendously because uh, it comes from a very real place. Uh, having him on that album was, I think, the biggest highlight. For me. That was like the, I think that was peak. You know, he came into to Brooklyn. I met him on the train. We, you know, we hung out for a while and he screamed his ass off. Uh, so getting to work with him in the studio, I loved watching him work. It was, it was awesome. He is awesome. Uh, probably one of my favorite lyricists, uh, like period. Like him, Richie Birkenhead, into another Tim Singer, Dead Guy, Kiss It Goodbye, Rennie Rosmini, Starkweather. Mike is right. Mike is right there with him. It's it's so raw. It's so real. His stuff is amazing. 
And his vocals really take this track to the next level too. I think so. I think so. I think our voices are different enough and he brings so much tone and grit. I'm like, wow. Like, like by, like just by myself, the part would have been okay, passable, but with Mike's voice, uh, it's like absolutely incredible. And like, uh, I, I legitimately hope he does something else musically like soon. The song Mad as the March Hare. It has a lot going on. It's got like these electronics underneath it. It's got you doing multiple vocal tracks, kind of one talking, one being distorted, you yelling over it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got guitars on the, almost like the the hook of the song is the guitars doing, you know, in different back and forth things. Yep. So was that all kind of thought of in the studio or when you guys are writing the song, are you like, oh, we should have this like, you know, I know that around this time, I should also preface it beforehand. You, of course, do the Nine Inch Nails cover. Um, I think around this time you're doing the uh, threat soundtrack with all those, you know, hardcore DJs. Oh yeah. With Alec Empire. We, uh, I think, uh, yeah. Alec Empire from Atari Teenage Riot. Oxygen Debt. It was Oxygen Debt. Right, right, right. Because uh, you know what? I, I named that song Oxygen Debt because it was so vocally intensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. This song, this song is hard to sing. Okay. So I named it Oxygen Debt. So, I, you know, certainly you guys could have already been into that kind of music beforehand, which is what led to those collaborations. But um, is that something that played into uh, kind of messing with that song a little bit more, you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, especially Justin and Rachel were, uh, you know, very heavily into like the beep boops and such. Uh, you know, I enjoy the beep boops, uh, but I'm not quite as driven to to incorporate those elements into the music. I think that was primarily done in the studio. Uh, it's not like, you know, we would write a jam and then kind of suss out on the spot. Oh, you know what would be cool here? Some beep boops or whatever. It was like, we'd be in the studio and, you know, Dean would, would tweak some stuff and we'd be like, well, what about this cool thing? And then we'd, you know, we'd record something and, there, there were a lot of beat boots. What is that song about? That I'm not going to answer because I want people to figure it out for themselves. I want, I want people to read the lyrics and uh, generate their own meaning, you know? Um, but I've, I've always been a proponent of kind of leaving a lot of that stuff open-ended because to, to give an answer to the question or to like say, okay, well, here's, here's what it means to me. It would be an insult to other people for whom the song means something completely different. Uh, so it, it's its own thing. Uh, once I, I, I let it out into the world, it's its own thing. And where it goes and what it does is none of my business. And the only reason why I would even ask you to be honest with you is because anybody else, I would just hear those lyrics, you know, fuck you all turn and run. That could be about anything. It could just be like, Oh, I want a cool sounding lyric on this song. But I know that you actually put a lot of thought into it, which is why I even was like, Oh, well, you know, there's gotta be a story here. So I'm not offended in any way, but I, I also, uh, your answer is the same reason I asked it. Right. No, no, there, there is a story to those particular lyrics. Uh, just like there is, and and thank you for that, for noticing that, like, you know, I, I put thought into everything I do. It's it's not just like, oh, here's a cool, hard sounding line or whatever. I mean, if if it works, it works. That's all well and good. But no, I mean, I don't ever just generate something for, you know, sounds sake, even if it's something small, some story, something that uh, has to come from an honest and real place and something plucked out of the soil, the landscape of my life. Well, Diet for a New America, I think, without any explanation from you, is about uh, probably the title. I'm assuming comes from the book, Diet from, for a the New book, America. The book, yeah, by John Robbins. And that was actually a request by by Justin and Rachel and I think Matt as well, because they were all like, you know, I think Justin was, was vegan at the time. Matt's like, you know, Matt's been vegan. I mean, people can do whatever the fuck they want to do. They can eat whatever they want to eat. It's, it's not for me to say. Be that as it may, <clears throat> at that point, I think I was still vegetarian, but I was trying very hard to kind of steer my lyrical content away from like neopolitical stuff, from like pseudo political stuff, because it just it felt like tyranny. 
I only care to influence someone's life in a way that allows them to help themselves to kind of draw from their own life instead of looking at what other people are doing as kind of like this, you know, the standard uh, to which they should conform, you know, no matter if if we're talking about diet, if we're talking about, you know, uh, straight edge, if we're talking about whatever, any kind of pursuit or any kind of discipline or political stance, anything. I don't want to, I just don't want to write songs like that. Which is which is strange. I mean, considering my my history in One King Down, like I was, it was real on the nose, you know. But what the fuck do you know when you're like 17, 18, You know, like you have one flag to wave, you know, that which is important to you. Okay, cool. Here's here's what I know about about life at the moment. Can't really fault myself for that because it's like really that's that's what I knew and that's like yay straight edge whatever. Okay, great. So what? Didn't you wave that flag again when you did a recon? Mm, no. <laughs> Which, what, what song are we talking about well just in general being you know that that's kind of their their thing what is veganism straight edge, straight edge. <laughs> uh no because the the lyrics that i wrote when i sang for recon had nothing to do with any kind of uh anything political i didn't write any straight edge songs uh you know and yeah like all of their their straight edge material before sure i i would sing those songs because that's part of the the recon, uh, you know, catalog. Yeah. You should have refused. You should have put you your foot what? down. That's right, like, right, right. My pledge, it ain't happening. Viper City, it's off the set list. <laughs> yeah, we would play like three songs, <laughs> I think. So Die for a New America, you're saying, was more influenced by other members of the band versus your own personal view at the, t- or at the time or now? Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> at the time, it wasn't, like, incongruous. It was, you know, I, like, I still, I still, you know, ate a vegetarian diet, but I, you know, I wasn't on fire to kind of write songs about animal rights or about straight edge or about, you know, anything, you know, beating into the ground at infinite. But I agreed, I forget exactly the conditions under which I, I did so, but, you know, it wasn't just me, I'm not a tyrant, and they're like, okay, we want to write this kind of song, like, all right, fine. I didn't necessarily disagree with the idea, uh, I don't want to be on a soapbox. The only thing I stand on a box for anymore is to reach the top shelf, get it, I'm short. Yeah, no, I, I do get it, but you got the big hair now, so that could like, although, you know, you kind of have this hairstyle circa merciless, really. That's right. That's right. Uh, except I think right now, my hair is actually slightly longer. Yeah, it's out of control for sure. Well, I mean, regardless of your intention or your uh, feelings about it now, the gang vocal go on Diet for New America is irrefutably sick. Regardless hard, of your right? and that's and that's just my voice. That's just me. That's just you. That's just me. Layered or just you one time? Um, I think I, I layered it twice. But no, there, there was no there were no gang vocals there. That's just that's just me. That's just my voice. Oh, well, that's sick because it sounds like a crew. Thanks. You were passionate about the go. The hey, the 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 veganism part, it's whatever. But the go, I'm definitely all in on. <laughs> You mentioned oxygen debt you named after just uh, how vocally exhausting it is. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the moments on the album, too, that uh, kind of showcases how Merciless is a little bit more on the metallic side than Our Lady of Annihilation is. It's got those, you know, kind of uh, more metal sounding. I don't know if they're leads, but the, the riffage, you know, it sounds uh, like a metal band. Right, I agree. So I think that that's a, a, a real pinpointed moment that you can point to. Like this is something that uh, differentiates it from Our Lady of Annihilation, you know, musically, not just vocally. We talked about, of course, you're kind of more fully you in this, but I think the band is also kind of it, it sounds more 
natural to be this like metallic hardcore band and not to say that you know indecision or even most precious blood prior wasn't a metallic hardcore band but definitely this is more on the metal side than the hardcore side to me we'll be back after a quick break but you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping you feel me loading them up on it, it only takes structure and, and you know just paying attention to the climate of the game yeah. Nah, I mean. So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm y'all trying. Oh, yeah, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. Oh, I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Hey, look, look, look. We all artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. I gotta lie. Don't play with it. Take that shit serious. Which I think I was, I was very happy about because I'm definitely much more of a metalhead than a traditional hardcore kid. No offense to the the youth crew kids out there, but it's just not for, not to my taste. Especially now, anybody who's like, "Yay, Posy!" Like, okay, either you're secretly on drugs, or you're legitimately crazy. Or both. what if you're what if you're openly on drugs? You can you can't be openly on drugs and Posy. Good luck. Well, speaking of being a metalhead. Kind of going back to the Roadrunner tie-in, are, were there any bands on Roadrunner that you were really into? I know you liked Earth Crisis because I remember that poorly received cover of Forged in the Flames at Hellfest. Oh, yeah, that went over like a fart in church. Well, Sepultura, Sepultura is undeniably like one of the greatest metal bands of all time. Uh, where the hell were we? Some festival. We were playing with like Sepultura and Typo Negative, uh, but Igor Cavalera watched our set. I was like, holy fucking shit, right? And so I step off stage and Igor comes up to me. He's like, holy shit, man, that was fantastic. Your show is incredible. So who are you? Where are you guys from? This is great. You guys are fantastic. And I was like, and in my inside voice was like, oh, fuck, it's Igor Cavill fucking later. Oh my God, it's Igor Cavill. Right? So my outside voice was like, oh, thanks, man. Who are you? <laughs> shit. Right. And he goes, oh, man, my name is Igor. I'm like, hey, Igor, what are you doing, man? You just uh, what are you here doing merch for somebody? <laughs> and he goes, I know, I know, I know. Shut up. So he goes, he's like, oh, no, man, I play drums for Sepultura. I'm like, you do no shit, man. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I dig your stuff. This is fantastic. I'm happy to meet you. Right. So in a way, it was kind of like a test, you know, to see if he was like some like rock star dickhead but no he's so down to earth such a nice guy right um and so he's like you should come watch us from the stage i'm like absolutely will yes no problem done um so sepultura very very nice guys igor super super nice yeah i'm and it was kind of surreal because you know we got to play some shows with uh with typo negative overseas and pete and i actually became really good friends uh so i was i was like it was kind of surreal Nobody has ever treated me nicer uh, than Pete. You know, I was backstage <clears throat> in the in a catering tent. And here I am with my little tray of bullshit and whatever. And there's just like hardly anybody there. And uh, at this like kind of round table, there's Pete. And there's like seven or eight like Norwegian supermodels or whatever. Just hanging out, right? And Pete's sitting there brooding. And so I walked over. And I said, hey, Pete, my name is Rob. Uh, we're playing some shows together. Uh, so I thought to come by and introduce myself and say, what's up? Uh, just totally, you know, normal, like, hey, I wanted to introduce myself and, and say hi. And, he, and his reaction will stay with me forever. He goes, Rob, it's great to meet you. Join me, won't you? He, like, invited me to the table. But before I sat down, he did this. He goes, uh, ladies, would you excuse us, please? And all of these women, without a fucking word, just stood up at the same time and filed the fuck out of the tent. Gone. And so here I am, I'm standing here with my tray of snacks, and Pete's sitting there waiting for me to sit down. He's like, please. I'm like, okay. And so I put my tray down. It's just me sitting next to Pete at this giant fucking table. And, he's, and he was super interested. He was like, 
so where are you guys from? What, what type of stuff do you guys play? Like he was legitimately like really interested. Uh, and, and so we started talking and from that moment on, every time we would play with typo, either Pete was in our backstage room or I was in typos backstage room and P and I carried on this conversation. It was like hours and hours and hours long. Like we never stopped talking. Uh, can you imagine that me never stopping talking? That's a far fetched idea. <laughs> so the point is our conversation, it, it never ended, uh, when, when we were around each other and it ranged from like medieval European history to like physics and, you know, uh, to religious concepts, to playing music and vocal stuff. And he was a total sweetheart. Uh, he was, he was a really, really nice guy. Uh, and I miss him. That's awesome. Not only is that a cool story, but that was a dead on Pete Steele impersonation. <laughs> I'm the only person to ever fail music in my Brooklyn high school. <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, and now I'm headlining festivals. I'm like, you sure are pal. You sure are. Well, you mentioned, you know, religious concepts. Of course, the band is called Most Precious Blood, an allusion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And there's different kind of sound samples and things like that throughout Merciless. One on the final song uh, where it's, you know, kind of mocking uh, collection plate type megachurch. But there's also one earlier in the album where uh, they're talking about uh, the material world. Oh, yeah. Things like that. And you used to wear these like Tulsi bead looking things on your neck. That's right. That's right. I used to wear, I used to wear Tulsi beads. Uh, they were, were gifts from uh, Krishna devotees. Uh, and, you know, a long time ago, I would say like late nineties, uh, you know, I had some very close friends who lived at the temple. Uh, and sometimes I would, I would visit them and take Krishna Prashadam and, you know, hang out with them and, and listen to, to lectures and, uh, and even for, for some time I had Joppa beads I said, well, let's, you know, let's see if I connect to this, but in the words of Henry Miller, I have found God, but he is insufficient. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there are a lot of, um, we plan a lot of religious themes and I think the, the primary idea is, you know, the, the, the most precious blood is that of your friends and family you know and not of someone you've you've never met now i i personally don't care to in my heart of hearts piss on anybody's articles of faith or disparage anyone's belief system people can do whatever they want they can worship who or whatever they want as long as it's not hurting any kids or any women or you know it's not it's not hurting anybody cool uh the second you start hurting kids you go into the fucking wood chipper uh you know fever so i can see the expression on your face like that kind of a that kind of a vibe but i also believe in the the marriage of free will and determinism right everything we do is uh, a result of a cause and effect relationship but we also kind of steer the ship all the while yeah so that being said uh, you know i don't i'm not bummed out on anybody for exercising you know faith or you know uh, praying or doing doing whatever it is that gives them strength and and helps them make it through their life Whatever they got to do is cool, you know, just don't hurt anybody. There's two kind of like interludes on the album. One is just silence, which is a world without music. Yeah, that was Justin's idea. That's a total energy killer. Okay. And then the other is Curse of the Immortal, which is kind of like a, a loop. Same mm-hmm. same thing, just kind of ideas uh, from other people in the band to give some sort of thematic connection to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, some of those ideas were Justin's. Um a couple of the sample ideas were mine, like the um, a movie called Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze. Was it Powers Booth? Uh, rest in peace. His his line was uh, to this kid who was like notching his his rifle butt. You know, all that hate's gonna burn you up, kid. And he turns and deadpan says, "Keeps me warm." Like one hundred percent, like one of the most accurate. You know, like there, there's me in a nutshell. Here we go. <laughs> There's a bonus track that's uh, actually on the Roadrunner version, and I had to pay. Remember when you had to pay money for music? You remember this? 
<laughs> a long time ago. I had to pay $1.99 on iTunes, which is a program I did not have to get this <laughs> aimed, carefully, fired, relentlessly bonus track yep. back in 2005, 2006. And there's a sample before that of somebody saying, you know, uh, we're going to bring back the old hardcore. We're going to get the old bands and take it back. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. That <laughs> sounds like that sounds like something you it might have just been you talking that they <laughs> right. <laughs> Where does the title Merciless come from? Obviously, I am familiar with the word, but what made you want to title the album that? The way I justified it. I mean, you can you can look at it in a number of ways. Uh, either how life is to people or how some people are to each other. Yeah. So just just themes on life. Is there anything you would have done differently making Merciless? Probably, but uh, <laughs> I would have to go in. I would have to go in and uh, and redo it, you know, to see what I would do differently. I mean, you know, you make the thing, right? And in the process, you think, okay, this this creative decision seems reasonable. All right, leave it as is, and then you take some distance from it. And then you come back to it and you're like, Oh, maybe I could have done that better. I would have done that differently. That's because we change all the time. You know, we're like, we're different people tomorrow than we were today. Uh, and so the, the creative decisions that we would make now probably very different than what we would do back in the day. Like for instance, um, one King down's bloodlust revenge, like vocally, lyrically, I detest that how dare you do you i, I know I it's you but don't I you absolutely. speak that way about that yep you bite your tongue you know don't you put that evil on me ricky bobby but yeah no i i listened back to it and it's just like i can't i can't stand it i mean musically fantastic love the boys you know they they did a great job but i cannot listen to my own voice i i, just, I don't like the sound of my own voice that's normal though. Remember when people used to leave voicemails and then you would hear yourself on a voicemail and you'd be like, Oh, oh yeah. 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 It's weird. It always sounds different too. Uh, but yeah, the point is that stuff I'm like, ah, I would have definitely made a lot of different creative and lyrical uh, choices there. And, you know, maybe, it, maybe that'll change or maybe I'll look back on like the take life album and be like, Ooh, I definitely, I hate all of those songs. I would definitely have written them differently. But that's where I was at the time. What are what are things about Our Lady of Annihilation that you like more than Merciless? You know, I think both of them have merit uh, on their own. I, I'm not sure if there's like, I'm not sure there's one thing I like more about one than the other. I mean, aside from perhaps a little bit, a little bit more musical and lyrical maturity, uh, you know, merciless over Our Lady, me finding my own voice, uh, you know, kind of settling into that both literal voice and that lyrical uh, voice with Merciless. So, yeah, I guess, you know, they, they each carry their own distinct energy, but I'm not, I'm not sure that I could do a, like a very accurate or, or meaningful compare and contrast between the two. All right. Well, I'll tell you what I like about Our Lady of Annihilation more than yeah, Merciless. Yeah, let's hear it. And you tell Let me, me that I'm you. right. Um, okay, go ahead. So Merciless is more efficiently devastating. It is concentrated. It's, you know, relentless. I mean, even the title Merciless, you know, just it, it can kind of go with the music because it's just pummeling you and it's banger after banger after banger. Our Lady is a little bit more like uncontrolled chaos. You know, there's just a lot going on. You guys are kind of very frenetic. The songs are are very, uh, most of them are shorter. You know, they're like two minutes long versus they're kind of more fleshed out on Merciless. So that's something that I like more. I think that Merciless is probably quote unquote better. And Our Lady mm. of Annihilation is my favored of the two. Mm, I see. I think, you know, you're, you're actually, you're spot on. You are, I was going to be cheeky, but no, you're, you're right. <laughs> I think your analysis, your analysis is sound. I like your ideas. But that's also because, you know, I don't hate the sound of your voice. So I have analyzed them for, you know, however many years they've been out and I get to listen to them and not have to worry about it. What is your favorite moment of making Merciless? Probably having Mike DC, having Mike DC in the studio. Having him there while I tracked my parts, uh, because I think 
at that point, I was in like peak shape vocally. And so having him there, getting to see me at the top of my game in the studio was like, that was great. I was glad to, to have him see me there uh, just laying it out, you know, so that, that made me really happy. And then just finding that, that clarity between my voice uh, as it, as it went into the mic and then as it went into the cans, like that kind of, there's a very strange kind of like feedback loop that occurs uh, that when things are like really open and lifted and clear and diaphragmatically supported and relaxed and everything is just like clicking exactly as it should, uh, it's, there's, there's no better feeling than being able to kind of just let it rip. You know, just just being around friends, uh, being around people you love, because ultimately, like, what else do we have, right? We're only here for a little while, and all we have are those we love. Thanks so much to Rob for reflecting on this 2005 album with me in 2021, 2022, whatever year you're listening to this in. Maybe we're up in space together, just floating around, listening to podcasts. But in the meantime, Rob does have a new project called Take Life, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that right now. We have two singles out so far, so I'm really, I'm I'm hyped on that. Um, I've been working with uh, Josh Mahest who did all the videos for like all the relapse band uh, so we got a couple of uh, YouTube videos on the Take Life uh, YouTube page uh, so I'm really psyched to be able to work with Josh he's a total sweetheart ego free very creative super symbolic thinker I love it um, and then we have <clears throat> in January a third single coming out and our, our album comes out uh, February 11, 2022 yeah so the, the link tree is uh, l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash take life so that's got all of our social media and the goods well there you go take life taken over for 2022 so be on the lookout for that And be on the lookout for more new episodes from Meet Me, both Living with the Pod Complex and your standard Road Runner flagship. My name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Me. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye.